0: Okay, again, the scripture reading, which is the basis of our meditation, is the Old Testament lesson. It's on page 4 in your worship folder. You've got verses 1 through 9 printed there. We're going to pick up verses 10 and 11 as well, which gets into the genealogical section, which is very, very important if you want to understand the book of Genesis. And so verses 10 and 11, we'll confine that to the end of the sermon as our final point that wraps it up and hopefully ties it all together for this generation. Uh, let's start by talking about something called Earth Summit. Earth Summit. Had you ever heard of that? Okay. Hey, who, who said you? Yeah? Okay, so you've heard of Earth Summit, okay, which is different uh, than Earth Day. we got Earth Day in our culture, right? I, I didn't know what Earth Summit was, and, and I fancied myself as a guy who was up on culture. You know, I, I've been a pastor since 83, and boy, I, re- I read psychology today, so I understood people. And, and I read newspapers and I read magazines and, boy, I watched the news. And, boy, I, I knew culture. It wasn't just my little p- place there in Denver that I understood. And then after 23 years, I flipped out. I had a midlife crisis at age 49.9 and left a perfectly healthy church and moved to Grenada. Not Granada. That's in Spain. Grenada. You know where Grenada's at? Yeah, you follow the Caribbean chain of islands. You go as far west as you can go. 90 miles from Venezuela the island stop. That's where Grenade is. Island about 10 by 20. It was a good idea to go there. It was the right time. It was a good call. It was a good plan. And I lasted 10 months there. And That's a whole long story. Why only 10 months? But it was a fascinating 10 months. Entirely different culture from Metro Denver, and the suburban church and everything that I had known before. It was fascinating in many regards. And the most fascinating aspect of it when just the music, the food, the island living, the humidity, the heat, the, the fruit everywhere, the spices. It's called the Spice Island. What was fascinating for me as a pastor was this. I had people in Bible information class from literally around the world who had come to Grenada. Germany, Great Britain, South Africa, several countries in South America, several different islands all were in Grenada at one time. And that's why I had my Bible information class. And probably the most fascinating group of people were the teachers who would come from Guyana. Now, where's that at? Little tiny country on the east-west side of South America. Uh, it, it's huge jungle, huge vegetable rearing that goes on there. And, and what are those teachers doing in Grenada? Well, they could make money. Guyana was known not just for its vegetables and its jungles and its tourism. They also had great institutions for teachers. And Grenada didn't have that yet. They got there eventually, but they, they had teachers who came from Guyana to teach in Grenada. And some of them entered my Bible information class. Mature Christian people who never heard of Lutheran before. All of them females. Very mature spiritually. Incredible educators. And that's where I found out about something called Earth Summit. I got to the end of the Bible information class, which for me was a fascinating thing, and there had been no criticism. And one of the sharper minds in that group said to me, this was all good. I love your doctrine. It's spot on. She said that in an articulate way. I'm downing the language a bit. She was very articulate. It's spot on. Love it. But I want to know why in the midst of all this doctrine, you didn't talk about the stewardship of the planet. Now, this is not going to be a sermon about hugging trees. Nor am I going to set aside the fact that God does, in fact, call us to take care of the planet. I'm not an extremist in either direction, but that I was an eye-opening moment. And she told me about not Earth Day, but Earth Summit, that long before there was an Earth Day, there had been an Earth Summit going on for years, long before countries were formally involved in saying, what do we do about global warming and these other things that we observe? What, something's going on here. There was Earth Summit. Interested people, scientists and lay people alike from all over the world would come to South America and say, we got a problem with the Amazon. We're destroying this part of the world. What are we going to do? How are we going to fix this? And they would talk and they would plan. And they had no money and they had no power, but they knew that there was an issue. She was involved in those discussions. And she said the problem with it, with her summit, is that God was never invited in. There was a whole lot of concern, a whole lot of planning, but the creator and the caretaker of the universe was never consulted in any way, shape, or form. She flipped the script on me, and she said, you got God right. You got God right in a way that I've never heard more clear and more succinct. But you didn't teach me a thing about God and his care for the planet. And in that context, she told me about her experience. She'd never had good doctrine before, but she'd always been real clear on stewardship of the planet. What she didn't hear was anybody interested in God being involved in the planning and care for the world. Why do I bring that up? This is precisely what takes care, what takes place in Genesis chapter 11. You probably had this story in Sunday school. Or your mom or grandma or grandpa or dad read this to you from a children's Bible. Or you read it on your own and thought, this is a curious event this Tower of Babel account, what's going on there? But did you ever think of it as being a series of contrasts in which the Creator says and does one thing and the creatures who live under the Creator think differently and act differently than what their Creator does? And that's what I want you to notice, the three contrasts that occur in these 11 verses at Genesis 11 which is kind of a a total shift in the way that people are to behave and think and the way in which God is gonna manage his planet. That's really what's going on here. This is different than the earlier chapters of Genesis where it was a perfect world. Remember that? That's history lesson number one. Genesis one and two. The coffee, if they had it, if Adam and Eve ground the beans, the coffee was always just right. Not too acidic, not too weak, it was good. There were no clothes, didn't have to worry about that. Nudity was not a problem, it was not offensive. A man and a woman got along. Not only did they get along, but they got along with their creator in this relationship. Can you imagine such a thing? That's Genesis 1 2. Genesis 3, something happened in the spiritual realm. An angel flipped out, so did other angels, challenged God's authority. They're kicked into hell. They thought in revenge for what he's done to us. We will go to his favorite place, the world, the planet Earth, and we will mess with his favorite creatures, Adam and Eve. And we will lull them into defiance and say, the tree with the fruit, did he really mean that? Leave your hands off. Don't eat it. Did he really mean that? Is he hiding something from you? And doubt was created in their minds, and you know the rest of the story. And immediately they knew that they had sinned and offended and covered themselves and hid from their Creator. That's Genesis 3. Flash ahead a few chapters. Probably hundreds, if not thousands of years of history in which the world became even more corrupt. From that one initial sin, the whole race, the whole of mankind sat in defiance toward the God. We reach the point where God describes the world as no longer having any, but these eight. Noah and his wife, their three sons and their wife. And as God sends a flood to destroy the which he had created, the human race, he preserves just eight. you remember that account? And now here's history lesson number four. We are post-flood. We don't know how many years later. Most who study this carefully and piece together these genealogies would give you an estimate of somewhere between 100 and 200 years. Noah is still alive. Shem, one of his sons, is still alive and shows up in the genealogies. But the whole human race, for the most part, has continued to go right back to where they were pre-flood. And yet God faces sort of a dilemma. There's this little thing called the rainbow up in the sky. Remember the meaning of the rainbow? Long before it became a symbol for many people in our culture. Remember what the rainbow is there in the first part? Never again will I, will I flood the people as I have this time. God swore on his own honor. He's not going to do that again. And as an omniscience, he carries out what he already said he knew he was going to do. He will not destroy the human race again. But he also will not allow them to go their own way and to deteriorate to the point of where there's not one believer left. So he intervenes. Verse 4, what God observes. The people said, let's build a tower to ourselves with a tower that reaches to heaven so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. In chapter 9, God had made it very, very clear. To Noah, his wife, their three sons and daughters, spread out, populate the whole planet. 100 to 200 years later, what's taken place? There has been no spreading out. People congregated in one place. Was it out of fear? Maybe. Was it out of defiance and doing something great as a human race? Absolutely. Let's build a city to honor God? No, in honor of ourselves. In the middle of a city, let's build a tower to honor ourselves, kind of a pillar to mark what a great thing we are, the human race, in absolute defiance. And not just any tower. This one is different. Apparently there have been towers made of stone before. This one, bricks with mortar can make it bigger, higher. Many people feel that this is the first ziggurat? You know what that is? It's a Middle Eastern thing. Towers that have spiritual relevance. I, di- I didn't know that when I was 13 or 14 years old, growing up in Saginaw, Michigan. The ziggurat was a smoke shop down on the River Street down there. Okay? I could go in and I could hear Jimi Hendrix music, Janice Joplin. I would see purple neon lights. I'd see posters. I'd see weird stuff. What's that attached to? Well, that's marijuana rolling papers well that's odd what's marijuana that was a ziggurat oh it claims to be a peace place of peace there's peace and love stuff all over in that shop and yet i would hear people argue and and scream and yell and jump up and down it struck me as strange as a certified lutheran confirmand of 13 years old this is weird it's supposed to be a place of peace but all here is arguing and there doesn't seem to be any inclusion of god and when they're talking about peace right? That was a ziggurat. That's where I first encountered the terms. Come to find out, the ziggurat actually shows up in the Bible, a tower of bricks with spiritual significance. And it wasn't necessarily to honor God. And I would ask you to simply pause there and say, okay, I read the account. I see how the human race defied God. We're not moving. We're not spreading out. We're going to build one city with one big tower, and that's it, God. I would ask you to consider, how does that same mindset still show up today? Maybe it's in our own architecture. We, we've kind of moved beyond bricks and tar, haven't we? We've put up some pretty impressive edifices, not just here, but around the world. To God's honor? I don't know what the tallest building in Baltimore is, but you got to have some tall ones, even though you're living on a paved-over swamp here, right? you got to have some tall buildings here, right? New York City's not that far away. Philly, major cities up and down the East Coast. we got some big towers to the honor of God or to the honor of this culture. If you say, well, they're kind of to the honor of God. They provide places to work and to live. Okay, fine. What about the arenas? the stadiums, some of these were put up at a cost that exceeds the general income and the general expenditure of whole countries. We're talking about $900 million. What's that thing down in Dallas where the Cowboys play? That went over a billion, didn't it? The ones that are being a now. Is, is that put up to the honor of God? Glory of God? Well, maybe. Or closer to home, those nice little castles that you live in. And compared to everybody else in the world, at least 90% of the world, you live in a castle and you've got two really fine chariots, maybe three of them, sitting out front or in your garage. Compared to everybody else in the world. I would ask you simply to read Genesis 11, verse 4, in a very personal way and say, Where have I effectively said, God, I'm something great. God, we're something great as a culture. And we don't necessarily have to listen to you. That's one contrast. Here's the second one, verses 5 through 9. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down and confuse the language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth. And they stopped building the city. That's why it was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. I honestly think that this was God's dilemma here. Even though in his omniscience he already knew what was going to happen, what was going to occur. But from an anthropomorphic point of view, that is imposing human thinking on God, he faces a dilemma. Do I let them keep on doing what they're doing or do I intervene? That's his dilemma. And if I intervene, what's that going to look like? I don't think it's any more profound than what you do as a parent or a grandparent. My, My kids moved out. The last one was out about five or six years ago. Four kids. I'm an empty nester now. So is my wife. But I get to hang out with grandkids, and every once in a while it's for a whole week. My wife enjoys that. I'm up done with it about day four. But last year, we did a week with each set of grandkids, one in San Diego, one in Denver, watched the kids while the parents went off and had holiday to themselves. And it brought back memories because now it's my grandkids who are one, three, five, seven, or nine and no longer my children. And I'm facing that same dilemma. When they're out there trying to catch butterflies with a net that's got a hole in it, And they're missing or trying to catch a bug with a jar and it's glass. Do I let them just keep doing that or do I intervene here? When they're sitting down at the table, it's an old table, it's a wood table. Don't refinish it, just throw it out eventually, get a new kitchen table. But in the meantime, do I let them go with a crayon all over the paper and the table? Or do I say, there's the lines, stay in the lines. You're three, grow up. As you interact with kids across the street, these are their friends. Do you intervene when it becomes violent? Or when playtime's over with the kids across the street, do you intervene when they get a little pushy and a little loud with one another? Or do you let it play out? And who's going to be the alpha dog amongst these siblings? And who's going to be the lesser dog? Do you just let it play out? Or do you intervene and correct? You all smile because you've been there. I think that's what God's up against. Do I intervene here? And if so, in what way? Because this is the issue. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower the men were building. The Lord said, if it's one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Great song by Chris Rhea about 30 years back now, Highway to Hell. I think there's also a rock song by that name. This is what God is seeing. They are on literally a highway to hell. And God understood the point of view that the unified language is causing a problem. They identify as one race. They will not spread out. They're going to stay in one place, not just because it's convenient, but in defiance to me. And therefore, I will not stand idly by. Verses 7 through 9, again. Let's go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth. They stopped building the city. And that's why because it was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole world. And he scattered them over the face of the whole earth. We're not told how he did it. We're not told. How do we go from one language to many languages? We're not even told how many languages were created in that day. Did he mess with their brains, with their tongues, or with their ears, or with all of them? We're told simply that he confused their language and they were no longer able to function and to coordinate the edifice erection, the building of this tower, the building of the city. And so in a depressed state, they scatter. I just want you to keep in mind That what we sometimes think is the proof of the human race achieving some noble goal by having all these different languages. Originally, all those different languages come about as a judgment from God on a defiant human race. And let's unpack the big lesson there. God will have his way. That's what he's saying here. Either in time or in eternity, God will have his way, even as we by nature defy him. God says, if you want to run down the commandments quickly, it will be me and me exclusively. No other minor God. God says regarding language, you be careful with that tongue. It's not just a word, that's my name. It doesn't come out of your mouth in an incorrect way. God says with regard to the older ones, the parents, the grandparents, the great-grandparents, that's a person to be honored and listened to, not somebody to mock because their legs and their hearing doesn't work like it used to. And right on down the line, you're going to honor life. You're going to confine your sexuality to marriage. You will treat money and wealth in the proper way, and probably the hardest one to keep of all the eight, you watch your tongue again, and be careful when you speak about somebody else and how you characterize them. God says, I will have my way. You are God's sanctified people. When you say, because of Christ, and a changed perspective, and the assurance of heaven, I know that his way is the right way, And I will look at those directives and I will attempt daily, hourly, to implement them in my life. That's the contrast between God having his way and us choosing a deviant path. And now finally, verses 10 to 11, verses you didn't have before in front of you, it's the ultimate thing. It's God saying, here's my solution over against maybe your human solutions to the dilemma of living on the planet. Verses 10 and 11 reads this way. Two years after the flood, when Shem was 100 years old, he became the father of Arphaxad. And after he became the father of Arphaxad, Shem lived 500 years and had other sons and daughters. And you're going, what does that have to do with anything? That's a note of promise. They built a tower and stayed together and built a city in defiance of God. God came down and forced them to be scattered because they couldn't understand themselves any longer. And now a positive note, that they do scatter. And a man by the name of Shem was 100 years old and gave birth to a son by the name of Arphaxad. And if you read the rest of Genesis chapter 11, I'd encourage you to do that when you get home. Read through that. It's not just some trivia, those genealogies there. Dude lived to be 900 years old. Man, that's something. Was it really 900 years? Yeah, it's really something. And here's why God allowed them, as far as we can tell, to live that long. Noah was still around, according to these genealogies. Noah, who endured the flood with 700 people in the ark, was still around, Until Abraham, remember him? He pops up starting Genesis 12. Abraham, the one to whom the promise is given that the Messiah will come from you. Going all the way back to Genesis 3, God picks Abraham and says, I'm going to start to fulfill that promise. Noah and Abraham might have had a discussion concerning this promise. Shem, the son of Noah. The one from whom the Semitic people, the Jewish people, the chosen people come. Shem is still around until Abraham's grandson, Jacob, is 48 years old. Think Shem had the opportunity to say, I lived through the flood. Jacob, you hold the promise. It was passed on to you. That promise includes a Savior, not just property and blessings, but the Savior will come from your family the one that we're looking for, and we've always been looking for if we were faithful ever since Genesis chapter 3. That's God's solution. God says, I will have my way in the planet, I will intervene, and here ultimately is my solution. As it begins to play out, not with Mark chapter 1 or John chapter 1, what we call the Gospels, but with Genesis chapter 12 and further back, Genesis chapter 3, where God says, From Shem, the son of Noah, who endured a flood, come the Semitic people, who are the Jewish people, who are the chosen people, who are the ones who will nurture the Savior. My options were to take out my wrath on the human race once again or to point the human race towards a Savior when I really will take out my anger on the human race. And that's where you and I flash ahead to Good Friday. God's ultimate anger isn't shown in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve took the fruit and he said, get some clothes on, get out of the garden. His ultimate anger is not saying, maybe if you'd had a child before this, it would have been no childbirth pain. But now there'd be pain. It wasn't saying, you can have frustration in work now, Adam, because the soil is not going to produce crops like what you had in Eden. God did not say my ultimate wrath is destroying the whole human race except for eight people. God says my ultimate wrath is to designate one from amongst myself, the Son who takes on flesh and blood and lives and on a cross feels hell in a moment but for eternity and cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me so that none of us will ever be forsaken by God? We call this the culmination of God's salvation plan. Rather than destroy the race, he rescued the race for time and eternity through the Lord Jesus Christ. We refer to this simply as the forgiveness of sin, our privilege to handle and to exercise with one another. Wife, husband, son, daughter, grandchild, I forgive you. And in return, I forgive you, grandpa and grandma. I forgive you, mom and dad. And I forgive you, neighbor. And I forgive you, coworker. And hopefully, with knowledge, they forgive back. This precious gift of God taking his anger out on Christ and therefore giving us forgiveness, atonement of sins, is something that deserves to be celebrated in every language.